Hello, friends. Hello, hello. You're listening to Sister Strange. I'm Corey. I'm Holly. And we've got mail. We got mail. We got, we got post. Mail. We have we we received things in the post. We did. Um, you received things in the post. Yes. Um, what do you got? One of my good friends who lives in Pennsylvania thought of me and you because of our lovely little podcast and sent us a magazine. Ooh. Yes. It is. It is America's scariest places haunted, creepy and abandoned by Centennial features. Hmm. It's the updated special edition. What's so special about it? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Oh, okay. But I flip through it, and it's got some really great articles and really great photos. Uh, so next time I'm down visiting, I will bring it, and you yeah. can enjoy as well. Um, but yeah, so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sort of our first piece of fan mail, but not exactly a piece of fan it's, mail. It's more like a resource. Yes. You know? Yes. Very cool. But I'm super excited. It was a good read when I went through it. So what sort of things are in it? Not to completely spoil it, because I'm sure we're going to use some of it for... Um, Segway? For episodes, yeah. Um, so it is broken down into five different chapters. Um. Chapter one being buried terrors, so cemeteries, things like that. Um, chapter two is grim indoors, uh, like the Muder Museum and the mm-hmm. Lizzie, Bord- Lizzie Borden House. Oh, I love the Muder Museum. Mm-hmm, I want to go. Uh, I want to go so bad. Um, we have Pain and Punishment, which focuses a lot on uh, hospitals, sanatoriums, things like that. Natural Horrors, so think the Pine Barrens, Green River, things like that. The Pine Barrens. Mm, there is a gorgeous, and I mean gorgeous, picture of that article, for that article that I'm in love with. Um, it was taken... Of the Barrens themselves? or y- Yep. But yeah. it's in the Barrens, and it was taken in the fall, and it's just these beautiful, vibrant red leaves littering yeah. the forest floor. It's gorgeous. Oh, Jersey, why are you awful everywhere else? <laughs> and then the final section mm-hmm. is the lost and abandoned. Okay. Which you have things like Dog Patch and Salton River Riviera. Oh, so, salt Sea. That's a whole nother episode in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I'm so here for the Salton Sea. That was so weird. Mm-hmm. But, with that being said, mm-hmm. it leads us into what we're talking about. Sort of. We picked a very weird way to frame this episode. Yes. Because it's another location-based um, episode. Sort of like how was episode two was Abandoning Connecticut. Was it two? Yeah, uh, episode, episode two. 
Yes. One, two. Two. One, two. Testing, testing. Hello. Um, when we did a band in Connecticut, so Dudley Town and um, Holy Land, USA. Um, I've chosen a roadside attraction. Um, and it's actually, this is the first time that we've talked about something in relation to this podcast at all that one of us has experienced. Yeah. I think so. Which one of us? Because <laughs> I honestly Me. have no idea what you're doing. Oh, yeah, because you oh, actually you leave. <laughs> you don't know what I'm doing? You, don't, no. you weren't paying attention. No. That's fine. All right. So. Sometimes hailed as the, quote, tourist trap to end all tourist traps, House on the Rock is part Japanese-inspired living space, part oddities museum, part enigmatic nostalgia, and all funhouse weird. So my sources this week are Wikipedia, naturally, thehouseontherock.com, the official website of the attraction, Atlas Obscura, Roadside America, um, personal experience, which is, I think, the first time either of us can say that as a first-hand source. Yeah, and, and I actually just to remember because it was it's been a little while. It was two years ago, um, since my trip out to Wisconsin. Um, I actually watched the Carpetbaggers three-part series on House on the Rock because it does require at least a three-part series. The House on the Rock was built in Wisconsin's Wyoming Valley. Oh, atop- yeah, I, I forgot <laughs> that you've been to. <laughs> I I've forgot that you traveled. I travel. I, I love to travel. Um, I do not. Sits atop a 60-foot-tall sandstone tower known as Deer Shelter Rock. According to House on the Rock's Alex Jordan Jr. Center and House on the Rock's website, Jordan Jr. was born in 1914 in Madison, Wisconsin. There's relatively little known about his early life. We do know that he graduated St. Norbert's High School then attended the University of Wisconsin at Madison as a pre-med major, but dropped out after one year. Sometime in the early 1940s, Alex began having picnics and eventually started camping at Deer Shelter Rock in Spring Green, Wisconsin. After his tent was blown away one night, he decided he wanted to build something more substantial, more permanent. The land then was owned by a local farmer, and Alex began by renting the rock. 240 acres and some financial assistance from his parents, Alex Jordan Jr. began to haul materials to the build site. Now, if you're familiar with House on the Rock, you may have heard whispers of some sort of slight or feud involving architect Frank Lloyd Wright. The story comes from Wisconsin artist Sid Boyum. He claims that sometime between 1914 and 1923, Wright, arguably the American architect, told Jordan Sr., I wouldn't hire you to design a cheese crate or a chicken coop. And that such a statement from Jordan's idol pushed the construction of House on the Rock. House on the Rock themselves point out several issues with the story. Mostly that, one, Alex Jordan Jr. and Sid Boyum were both born in 1914, and even at the late end of the story would have been no older than nine. And two, even though Wright's home and studio to Leeson was also in Spring Green, between 1916 and 1922, Wright was in Japan working on the Imperial Hotel. Regardless of the story, construction on House on the Rock started in 1945, and in 1959, a sign on Highway 23 advertised the house to paying tourists, 50 cents each at the time. 
The current tour splits the entire House on the Rock experience into three sections. Disclaimer before I get started. These sections may not necessarily be in the order as the house flows because it does flow through a single route. Maps do exist online, and I'll try to post one on the Instagram. So buckle up, kids. This one's a doozy. Section one is the original house, the gatehouse, and the infinity room. The original house is a 13-room wonder. It's full of stained glass, very low ceilings, and dim, dusty lighting. At some point, Jordan's original home turns into the gatehouse. Completed in 1961, it features more stained glass, massive fireplaces, and coin-operated self-playing musical instruments. Then there's the infinity room. 218 feet straight out, 15 stories up. The infinity room juts over the forest floor like a finely honed knife. 3,000 window panes allow you to see every leaf and twig at eye level. The viewing window at the end sort of makes you feel very small as you look down at the floor below you. Even though it's in section one of the tour and fits among the oldest sections of the house, it's actually one of the newest additions, built in 1985. Section two includes the mill house, the streets of yesterday, the music of yesterday, the spirit of aviation, the heritage of the sea, and the world's largest indoor carousel. The mill house opened in 1968. The best way I can describe the mill house and House on the Rock as a whole really is a collection of collections. You like guns? Jordan displays hundreds of antique guns on walls, in cases. Do you like antique dolls? Try thousands. There's a display case of dozens of Fabergé eggs. The Streets of Yesterday, built in 1971, has a damp, dusty, Disney Main Street USA feel. Storefronts line cobblestone, a sheriff's office, a blacksmith, a fire station. The Music of Yesterday is a token-operated room, opened in 1974. Hundreds of instruments and mannequins play songs from the Mikado, or classics such as the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, featured in the striking Red Room. There are dozens of miniature automatons, also coin-operated, that play cuts of other pieces. The most recently opened section of Music of Yesterday is the Blue Danube. The Blue Danube is a waltz from Johann Strauss, and at House on the Rock, it's played by several floors of invisible musicians. Then there's the Heritage of the Sea, a one-room museum for the history of nautical travel. The centerpiece of this winding cavern is a massive whale devouring a life-size whaling ship, bordered all the way around by glass-branched displays of everything from the whaling industry to the Titanic. And when I say this whale is massive, I mean it's literally five stories tall. It's almost life-size. The jewel of Section 2 is, without a doubt, the carousel. After the Spirit of Aviation is another enormous, musty room filled top to bottom with lights and sound. This room is super loud, you guys. While not available to patrons to ride, the world's largest indoor carousel is several rows deep of animals, 269 to be exact, not a single one of them is a horse. 182 lanterns, over 20,000 lights. When close to the railing, it seems to just go on forever. All the horses are mounted on the walls surrounding the carousel, and overhead, 1970s store mannequins are half-dressed as angels. A lot of boobs. If you're familiar with Neil Gaiman's American Gods, 
either the book or the TV series, which is super good. It's the House on the Rock carousel that serves as a means of interdimensional travel. Section three is home to the organ room, inspiration point, the dollhouse room, circus room, the galleries, and the doll circus room. From the carousel, you exit into the organ room, all winding ramps that make you feel a little like you're inside a clock tower. The organ room is essentially like the Phantom of the Opera on steroids. Inspiration Point is an exterior section of the attraction, a reprieve from all the dim lighting and noise, and serves as a great way to see, sometimes, the house and the infinity room from another point of view. The dollhouse room is just that, a maze of miniatures and every style of structure as a dollhouse you could imagine. The circus room is impressive in its own right. A dozen life-size elephants are stacked in a dainty pyramid. Within the galleries are reproductions of the crown jewels of a dozen countries, hundreds of guns from every era of history, and if memory serves, a life-size replica of a medieval battle with armored horses and humans alike. The doll circus room is, in my personal opinion, the stuff of nightmares. A miniature four-story carousel is filled with tiny porcelain dolls riding tiny carousel animals, surrounded by a tiny airship and yet more miniature, miniature carousel horses mounted on the walls. Believe it or not, this is a simplified view of House on the Rock. It doesn't include every collection, all the taxidermy, all the automatons the Japanese gardens, or the full-scale 1950-style pizza restaurant, Racino's. Even the bathrooms are full of weird. One is framed by a backlit wall of colored glass. Another is filled with taxidermy. It's impossible to get a good look at everything at House on the Rock in one day. When I went, one of the employees even said that we could do sections one and two one day and come back with our tickets for section three, though I'm not sure if that's still policy. Now, that's not to say that House on the Rock is a perfect attraction. Nothing could be further from the truth. Many of the antique's authenticity has been long debated. Alex Jordan Jr., according to one of his biographers, quote, usually preferred a good copy that cost less, end quote. The stained glass featured nearly everywhere in the house was advertised once to be Tiffany glass as recently as 1978, but was actually by manufacturer Bauer and Coble. Now, House on the Rock seems to have, quote, the largest collection of Bauer and Cobalt lamps in the world. None of the suits of armor are genuine either. The website bears a disclaimer that they were all constructed for House on the Rock. In the music rooms, the sound of most of the woodwinds and brass is piped through. Beyond authenticity of the antique, House on the Rock, again, in my opinion, could really use refurbishment and overhaul. Most of the coin-operated automatons don't work well or work at all. Everything, everything seems to have a fine layer of dust, and everything seems to smell damp and mildewy. Much of the taxidermy needs more than a little love. Some windows in the house proper are cracked. For $30 a head, this is on the steeper side for most tourist attractions, but there is so much to see. Alex Jordan Jr. fell into poor health starting in 1964 after a severe heart attack damaged 30% of his heart. In 1972, he struck a horse in a near-fatal car accident. He saw much of the construction at House on the Rock out himself. House on the Rock was sold to Art Donaldson, a longtime business associate of Jordan's, on December 14, 1988. Even after the sale, 
he stayed on as art director. There are photographs of him in his old age in the mouth of the whale in Heritage of the Sea. Alex passed away November 6, 1989. While he only spent four nights at House on the Rock, he requested that his ashes be scattered over the property, which they were. So, House on the Rock is probably one of the coolest sideshow, uh, sideshow, one of the coolest roadside attractions I've ever been to. Um, and I don't think anything I've written can really give you scale because this thing is massive and endless and I, I mean it when you I say you can't really see everything in one day um, but that's House on the Rock see that makes me want to travel more but no <laughs> I mean it was a trek Spring Green is kind of out of the way um, yeah it's about an hour um, outside of Madison, which is where I was staying with a friend. Um, so it's a trek, and it's literally kind of in the middle of nowhere. Like, you turn off the highway, and it's just forest. But even outside, like, they have giant... You know what a strawberry planter looks like, right? Yeah. It's like a terracotta pot, and it's got, mm-hmm. like, little cubbies around the side. Now, picture two of those. Okay, cast mm-hmm. them in, I think they're bronze, and then make them big enough for Ethan to stand in and hide. That's weird. Um, for reference, my, for reference, Ethan is about 6'2". They're massive. Um, and House on the Rock, like, you can make a weekend of it. They have House on the Rock Inn, which is sort of like the lower scale um, lodgings. Like, there's a little hotel with, like, a pool, um, then you've got House on the Rock Resort, which is much more upscale, and there's a golf course and things like that. Mm, hoity-toity. Little hoity-toity. But it's definitely like, let's make a weekend of it. Yeah. Get a, you know, get a hotel room, spend the 60 bucks ahead, or 30 bucks ahead, get some coin-operated tokens, and just wander around House on the Rock for a day. You know? Yeah. That's neat, though. That's super neat, and it's super cool that you got to experience it. Yeah, and I'll post, um, I have video of the carousel. Um, and again, it's loud, you guys. Like, your ears ring as you go from this carousel room into the circus room. Is that what I said? The organ room? Whatever that transition is. Your ears kind of ring. And inspiration point is definitely necessary after that point, because whoo, everything is loud. Even the, like, coin-operated... Um, like the music stuff, like the coin-operated um, yeah. instruments that play themselves, those were even loud. Well, and some of them are like these beautiful, like sitting rooms, like Baroque-era style sitting rooms, with lush carpeting, um, and it's like like upholstered walls, and it's still loud. So the Red Room, for example, right, which plays a selection from the Mikado, which is an opera, and believe not. Everybody's heard something from the Mikado, whether or not you actually know it. Um, yeah, you've heard things from the Mikado, whether or not you know it or not. Um, and video of this stuff exists on YouTube. Like, I, I, oh, um, but the Red Room, which plays sections from the Mikado, is literally three 
story, like three levels, I think, maybe four. It's kind of nuts. That's still insane. And the thing is, he collected stuff just to collect it. You know, Um, he signed over the property, like I said, in 1988, what did I say? Yeah, 1988, um, and left what was left of his money because he was relatively independently wealthy. Like the 50 cents ahead he started charging was a lot of money in 1959. Yeah. Um, so he left the rest of his wealth or whatever was left to a longtime girlfriend. Um, so he never married. There were no children. Um, but he was with, and to be honest, the uh, like the Alex Jordan Center, um, which is like the Welcome Center slash ticketing booth, has like a little museum about him specifically, uh, and they call him the, her like a longtime partner or a longtime companion, um, but it doesn't seem you're with someone for fifty years like that. I mean, you're, every, you're everything but legally his wife. <laughs> Pretty much. But, like, she was left the remainder of his money, and and House on the Rock has just sort of grown since since then. They do um, Halloween, like, spooky haunted Halloween situations. Ooh. Um, and then they decorate for Christmas, which is, I guess, thousands of Santa Claus. Santa Clauses is everywhere. What is the plural of Santa Claus? I feel like it's Santa Claus. <laughs> is it like deer? <laughs> Moose. Moose? Geese? Oh, it's goose. Goose. Never mind. <laughs> you tried. <laughs> I did. Um, but yeah, so if you are in the Spring Green area or you are cruising through Wisconsin, I think it's totally worth stopping. Again, I do think that it needs a little love. Like, I'm really hoping that in this COVID-19 business, everything got a good dusting, you know? So I have pictures, and it, I took a picture of it because it just made me snort out loud um, in the middle of the attraction. But there's a tax order display mounted on a wall, right? And it's a little woodland thing. So there's, like, like birds and and squirrels and chipmunks. And there's this small rodent of some sort and the taxidermy has fallen over oh. and it's like me too buddy the same <laughs> same though same hat um but it's like everything just needs a good once over you know do you remember yeah. when we were at disney world and we did tiki room yes we sat i think like in the last row like against the wall right do you remember that Vaguely. Do you remember the sound of the audio animatronics sort of clicking and whirring? Or yes. Chum, 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 as their little eyes open and close. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what everything sounds like at House of the Rock. Okay. You know, like everything needs a little, a good grease, a dust, um, but it's so super worth it. Um, so $30 is steep in, in the grand scheme of things, but there's a lot to see. And it's really, it's like 10 bucks a section. 
And when Which you break it down like that, that's not bad. Isn't bad. Um, so that's House on the Rock. Highly recommend. That's neat. Yeah. Very neat. Yeah. Mine is less neat. Still neat, but less neat. I think yours is very neat. So did you stay with what you were going to do? Yes, I did not change my subject. Cool. I would have I texted you. <laughs> I would have texted you. Kind of cool. Yes. It's cool, but it's depressing. Yeah. Um, Such is life. Yeah, well, it's depressing because the more research I did into it, the more upset I was getting at it. Not because of what's currently going on or mm-hmm. what has been going on, but because of... I gotta start it. So, in order to give you more of an idea of why this is so upsetting, it would help if you knew what I was talking about. I am taking a nice, deep look at the mine fires in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Woo! Not really. (laughs) So, a little background. In 1749, multiple Native American tribes sold large amounts of land to English settlers. This land would eventually become Centralia, Pennsylvania. Fast forward about 100 years, Centralia has become a very thriving mining community. And in 1956, the town's first two mines are established. The following three mines were established between 1860 and 1863. And by 1866, the town had solidified its place in the mining industry. One of the town's founders, however, Alexander Ray, was murdered by an Irish activist group called the Molly Maguires. Um, so if you don't know who the Molly Maguires are, they were in a secret society in Ireland, Wales, England, and later the United States that focused mainly on... Um, the rights of Irish immigrants and the rights of laborers and things like that and making sure things were fair. Um, And unfortunately, things don't always go peacefully. (laughs) Um, Members of the Mollies were often accused of murder, arson, kidnapping, and other crimes. Um, Many historians believe that most of these accusations accusations were actually fabricated by owners of the mining industry because the Mollies were a very large group trying to unionize the workers for fair pay and safer working environments. So we're not off to a great start in that sense with troubles with the mining industry. We're going to time skip another 100 years to May 7th, 1962. The town council is discussing preparations for its annual Memorial Day celebration, which included how the state was going to clean up the city, the current landfill. Um, The pit was 300 feet wide by 75 feet long and was made up from a 50-foot deep strip mine that had been cleared in the 1930s. In 1956, the town did pass a precautionary law about using mines as landfills. Landfills had been known to be the cause of many mine fires and required regular inspections and permits to use these abandoned mines as landfills. Regional Landfill Inspector of the DMMI, which is the Department of Mine and Mineral Mineral Industries, uh, George Segrets 
was concerned about the holes in the walls and the floor. He informed Centralia Councilman Joseph Teej that the holes would need to be filled with a non-combustible material. Remember that? That is super important. This new landfill was supposed to stop illegal dumping in Centralia, and at the time there were about eight illegal landfills due to the town having to shut down its previous dump. Um, this previous dump was shut down because of complaints from the archdi or the maester of the church in Centralia. He was complaining of the smell and um, possible safety concerns concerns of it being so close to the church, so it wound up getting shut down. Um, the proposed process was never described by the council, just that they had arranged a cleanup of the strip mine. Um, David DeCock summarizes in his 18, or 1986 book, Danger Unseen, A Tragedy of People, Government, and the Centralia Mine Fires, uh, that the council did not describe how they worked to clean up the mine because the method that they were set to use was to set the mine on fire, which was against state law at the time. They set a date and hired five members of the volunteer fire company. And in May, on May 26, 1962, the dump was set on fire. And by the evening, the visible flames had been doused. Two days later, the flames were once again visible, and once again, the flames were taken care of. Flare-ups continued to happen, and on June 4th, a bulldozer was brought in to stir up the burning trash so that the lower layers of trash could be put out as well. This revealed a 15-foot wide and several-foot-high hole in the base of the north wall. The trash had concealed it, so it was not filled in with non-combustible materials. It is thought that this hole is what led to the mine fire underneath Centralia, and the cause to this day is still undetermined and debated. Despite best efforts to put out the fire, it continued to burn. And by July 2nd, the smell had reached St. Ignatius's church, meaning that the burning was no longer contained. Three excavation attempts were made between August 12, 1962, to July 1st, 1963, to stop the spread of the fire. This project totaled $43,420, which is roughly $335,250 in 2019. After many failed attempts to control these fires, the United States government decided to step in in 1984. They allocated a $42 million relocation fund to move the entire town. Most residents took the buyouts and moved far away, um, far enough away that they weren't counted in close town censuses in the following years. They left the state. While others refused and stayed in their homes. In 1992, the Pennsylvania government invoked Imminent domain, which essentially means that any abandoned property was now property, public property of the state of Pennsylvania. In 2002, the United States Postal Service revoked the zip code for Centralia. And in 2009, a formal eviction for the remaining residents was put into place. 
In July 2012, a few residents filed an appeal against the eminent domain and unfortunately lost, and were once again ordered to leave. In October 2013, state and local officials reached an agreement to let the remaining residents live out their lives, then having their property seized, becoming local domain. The fires were so intense that they affected a town south of Centralia that also had to be evacuated and eventually demolished. The downside to all of this is Centralia has now become something of a tourist destination. Yes, it is completely legal to visit Centralia. However, this is not without consequences. As of 2018, there are still 11 residents of Centralia. Many have stated that there is a vast amount of graffiti on PA Route 61, which is an abandoned stretch of the highway. And many even recall people chipping away at homes where people are still residing to bring home a souvenir. Um, at one point, scouters for an undisclosed movie were looking at the area, and they ultimately decided, decided not to use the area because of the, the vast amount of graffiti. And as of April 2020, the private owner of Route 61 began efforts to clean the graffiti off that highway. Now, the more interesting part of this is the town is the inspiration for the setting of the 2006 film adaptation of Silent Hill, which, depending on who you talk to, still fits into the Silent Hill universe of the game, or it has nothing to do with it at all. Um, I lean towards the latter. As far as video game movie adaptations, no. <laughs> Just, can we stop doing that? Please and thank you. Um, but a lot of the setting and even some of the plot for the film is heavily based off of Centralia. As of today, Centralia is still on fire. It is still a dangerous place. And the residents that live there still deserve respect. Um, so if you decide to go and venture to Centralia, be respectful of the people that are still living there. Don't tag your, don't tag anything with graffiti. Don't steal pieces off of, um, off of people's homes. Um, be aware of your surroundings. There are still plumes of smoke and carbon monoxide emerging from the ground, and residents will tell you you can feel the ground shift underneath you anytime part of the mine system collapses and it's it's not a safe place and it's confusing to me what the draw to go to such a dangerous place after the United States government is literally trying to evacuate those who are still living there because of how dangerous it is. Um, I've also found some really good Google Street Views of Centralia. Um, you can see the insane amount of graffiti that is on that stretch of highway. Um, there must have been an amateur film group there at one point because last time I looked, I can't find it anymore. It makes me really sad. Um, there was like four people in tactical gear 
with the horse masks on. Yeah. Um, but that's Centralia. Um, my sources for this one were history.com, cracked.com, our friends Wikipedia, kotaku.com, and two books that are really, really, really good if you guys get the chance to actually read them. Um, the first one is The Day the Earth Caved In, an American Tragedy, or an American Mining Tragedy by Joan Quigley. And the other one is Danger Unseen, a Tragedy of People, Government, and the Centralia Mine Fires by David DeCock. Um, I've read both of these book books um, when I first moved up to where I am because uh, the local library had them. Support your local libraries when you are able to because quarantine is still going on and they're not open. But they're really, really, if you want a really good look at how this affected every single person within that radius, um, how it affected the government, how it affected the environmental side of it as well, um, these are really, really, really good books to read if you're interested on learning more about Centralia and the mining fire and all that good stuff. But yeah, that's Centralia. That's wild. It is. and it's So convoluted. It's very convoluted. A lot of um, the what's more convoluted is that they're still denying that them burning the landfill is what caused it. Um, there were even accusations of arson at one point over like how that fire got started. Um, and I feel for the res residents that are still there, um, mostly right. because in the interview I got read off of Cracked, um, one of the people that were interviewed said it was like the United States government was just trying to wipe Centralia off the map and make it like it never existed. Like, I don't... Um, it's also estimated that those mines could be burning for at least 250 more years. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Because who knows how deep they go. Yep. You know? Um, I believe that there are still people that go out at least once a week to test the carbon monoxide levels to make sure everything is still safe. Um, one interview recalled having to stay inside for at least a week due to the carbon monoxide levels like when she was younger mm. and that's just insane like it is absolutely insane what's even more insane to me and I get it it's your home and it's almost that stubbornness of no this is my home I'm staying put but why would you want to stay in a place that has such danger to it well, the same thing happened with Japan, right? Yes. With, with <laughs> Fukushima and the tsunami. You have people who refuse to go. Mm -hmm. 
Um, like there are people who still live within within not the danger zone, but very close to the danger zone at Fukushima. Mm-hmm. So, like the very bare minimum of the exclusion zone. Mm-hmm. But again. If any of you decide to wander to Centralia, be respectful. Like, Absolutely. And be safe. Like, don't mess with people. Don't mess with be people. Safe. Be aware of your surroundings. The people that live in Centralia, they know the land better than anybody else. You take mm-hmm. one wrong step and you're done. Yeah. You've, you've fallen through a sinkhole into a you've burning fall- mineshaft. But, That's insane. Mm-hmm. And you said the last holdouts, it's like, what, 11 people? As of 2000, like 2018, there are 11 residents. Okay. Now, I'm very curious how they get their mail. Because there's, no longer, there's no longer a zip code for Centralia. They may have a P.O. box. Possibly. Or whatever the closest. Uh... Yep. But it's St. Ignatius's church is absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Like, I've seen pictures of this church and it's so... I love good architecture. <laughs> and it's so simplistic. But, again, it's one of those things that the 2006... Silent Hill movie pulled really well. Like, you look at that church and you're like, yep. Found it. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Good job. Thanks. Well done. And I originally chose this one because I am such a Silent Hill fan, and I'm such a fan of horror, but this is a different kind of horror. Right, and I think when you look at things in context like that, it's... It's sad at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's really sad. Is there anything else we need to chat about? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't have anything. I don't have anything either. No, we just got right to the point on that one, didn't we? We did. <laughs> so thanks, everybody, for listening this week. Um, all the relevant images and all the videos and all the bits and pieces will be on our Instagram, at Sister Strange Podcast. If you have something you want us to chat about or something we need to know about, you can always email us at sisterstrangepodcast at yahoo.com. Um, And we will see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.